Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 2. I'm Casey Tigert. I'm your host. I'm an author, pastor, and spiritual director. Several years ago, I had begun a job working in spiritual formation and talking about spiritual practices, talking about things like rest, silence, and solitude. And in the midst of that, I reached out to some people who had written on the subject or had shown that they had some proficiency in the area, just because I wanted to figure out how do you talk about this? How do you help people in churches to learn how to rest, to learn how to enter into these, what Eugene Peterson in the message says in Matthew 11, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. And one person I reached out to actually got back to me. And we spent about half an hour on the phone talking about all of these things and more. And it made a deep impression on me. That person's name was Alan Fadling. Since then, Alan has written several books, including an award-winning book called An Unhurried Life. And now he and his wife, Jem, co-lead an organization called Unhurried Living, where they resource people on how to live in the genius of Jesus's invitations to rest, to silence, to solitude, and the unhurried way of being. Today, we talk about their new book, What Does Your Soul Love?, and the eight questions that show where God is at work in each one of us. And so I hope and I believe this conversation will be as impactful on you as the conversation I had several years ago was. So let me introduce you to Alan and Jem Fadling. Alan, Jem, welcome to the Otherwise Podcast. And you guys are the first couple I've ever interviewed. Well, that's quite an honor. Thank you for having us. Appreciate it. I'm yeah, not sure we've done yeah. a ton of couple interviews ourselves, actually. I don't think we have. Maybe it's a first all the way around. <laughs> How about that? I love firsts. Firsts are great yeah. things. They are. <laughs> well, so because so because of that, I, I kind of wanted to ask this. Um, the work you all do is primarily in spiritual formation, spiritual transformation, uh, from a podcast, books, traveling and speaking, and internationally, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is, what does that look like? What's the impact of that kind of work on you two as a couple? Well, it's been fun, you know, to do this work together in a lot of different ways for probably most of the last 30 years. Yes. And, um, I think part of the opportunity and impact on us as a couple is we get to deal with things that are central together a lot. And so the fact that we're addressing things that matter deeply, you know, I think to the heart of God, but also matter deeply in terms of just people's experiences and that we get to witness God at work when people have encounters with God in contexts of retreat or in training contexts or in conversations that we have and that we get to share that with each other. I think that that really has enriched our friendship as a couple. Yeah, it's been good. And and in light of that, you'll find out very quickly that Alan and I like to keep it real here. <laughs> and that is absolutely true. We've, I think we bring out the best in each other and at our best, we are very, um, there's a complimentary, not complimentarian, but complimentary way that we have of um, the best of who we are works very well together. Yeah, there's and a synergy. I think. There is a great synergy. And on the, and then of course, keeping it real. I mean, that means we're doing everything together. We're married together. We work together. We live together. We have a home office. We wrote a book together. We wrote a book. We, like you said, there's this whole list. And so as you can imagine, Adam have been married for 34 years. So you can imagine that within that, 
sort of suit mix, there's been a lot of times where, where we rub up against each other. And it gets challenging because we are different in almost every way, personality-wise, yeah. and we come at things. So it's been challenging here and there, but we take the time to, to work it through. Are you Enneagram proponents? Yes. So where do you all, what spaces do you identify with? So I identify with seven. And I identify as a five. Oh, can you see already why there's an issue? So there's, there's at least some folks who are not completely confident that fives and sevens would make a great couple. I read a book, I read a book once. It was in the Enneagram in Business, and it said basically when working together, sevens and fives are oil and water. Wow. <laughs> yeah. See, now I identify as a four, and my wife is an eight. And so we have a similar setup because I, yeah, I just have yeah. that free flowing sort of creative fly by the seat of my pants thing. And she has the driven, dedicated protector and, uh, it, but it works. I, I, it's funny to me, the ones that they say shouldn't work, it all depends on how healthy you are. I could see yeah, the two of us true. being unhealthy, just being acid to each other, but yeah. Well, I think the more potent the, you know, the differences, the more powerful the potential synergy and, and that gets at what you're saying about health level you know i think that's that's where differences can be a beautiful thing in our friendships working relationships in our case in a marriage yeah yeah well so this leads interestingly enough into a question i ask all of my guests which is um and it doesn't have to so i don't want the whole thing but i just want to get us started if you had to start, and I'd love to hear both of you on this, if you had to start defining the word wisdom, where would you begin? I think wisdom for me starts with the idea of experience. I think wisdom comes from, I mean, obviously the cliche answer is, you know, it's more than knowledge, but I just so believe that, that there's whatever knowledge you have going down into your life, you wrestling and learning and growing. I think wisdom comes from that place. Mm. Yeah. And I think for me, you know, the, the, a lot of people will say that, you know, we're absolutely swimming in information, yeah. but we are in an absolute drought of wisdom. And to me, wisdom is having a life in which I've learned how truth works actually know how truth works. I know how to live within it. I have come to understand the nature of reality uh, more than I did before. I know how to live within that reality. And in, in this case, I'm talking about the reality of the kingdom of God. And wisdom is knowing how to live within that well and, and knowing how to um, encourage others and help others gain a vision for how this reality works. So that's kind of where I think in terms of wisdom. Yeah. How, does, how do you see that informing the way that you've gone about the work that you all do? How does wisdom flow into what you do as a couple, what you do in your ministry? Yeah, well, if you're talking about the idea of lived experience, very early on, when we were in our 20s, we received what we call, we like to call our calling. And God was gracious enough to give the calling to both of us at the same time in a way that we could both perceive it and, and not live it out fully. Because when you're late 20s, you know, you can only do so many things. There's not much life wisdom there. But one of the phrases that came through in this calling was, you will share your lives. 
And even in our most rudimentary understanding of that at the time, we knew that that meant that somehow we weren't going to just be talking about stuff. That somehow whatever it is we were going to be leading people in was going to have come through our very lives. And so that's why I have this idea about wisdom being something that's been lived. It's mm -hmm. been tested. It's been tried. It's been tried on. And um, so it's kind of gone pretty far back, 30 years. Yeah. So just as an illustration of that, um, you know, last month we got a chance to travel to Uganda and Rwanda. And in Uganda, we led a two-day retreat for the Archbishop and the House of Bishops for the Church of Uganda. So this was about 35 or so men and spouses, wives, who were present, each of whom is responsible for 50, 100, 200, maybe 400 churches. So just crazy, you know, levels of responsibility that, that we don't identify with because we're not in a position like that. But most of what we did was we shared stories from our lives. Uh, when we were talking about scripture, it wasn't just a, a, a good exegesis of a passage, unpacking the passage or even talking about the passage, but trying to share the story of how this has intersected the way we live, the way we work with people, the way we do our work of ministry. And at the end of the time, the archbishop stood up and made some comment about um, how often it feels to them like those of us from the West will come and sort of bring our PowerPoint presentations and will give wonderful, you know, theory and idea. And, and they said, you didn't have any PowerPoint slides. And they weren't, they weren't complaining, you know. <laughs> they just basically they said, you shared your lives with us, which for us was an amazing sort of affirmation of our sense of calling for so long. But I think that's the great hunger for many is, does this life actually work? This life of following Jesus, this life of being an apprentice, is this workable? Can you, can you be a follower of Jesus doing the kind of work you do in ministry? It sounds like a dumb question to ask. But, you know, I, I at least at some points along the way have had some models of how to lead and be in churches that didn't feel like it worked very well. Um, so that's, that's kind of, it's that um, the sharing our lives and how that ends up being sort of how, how wisdom has become a part of us. And then we speak from those places of sort of companionship with God uh, that that's shared with those that we spend time with. One of the blessings of hosting this podcast is just getting to hear people give different approaches to wisdom and, and how much there's consistency. There's an embodied part. There's a story part. There is a, a deep connection to, there's a deep connection beyond just the ideas, beyond just the thinking parts, but it's the thinking and the behavior together. And, and that's, that's where we get the text for when we talk about transformation. The only way to know if transformation is taking place is if you can look back and go, like Dallas used to say, am I more or less irritated than I was last month? <laughs> it is measurable. I, th I think that's, you know, you can measure that. You can see if transfer, and I know that's your heart is for transformation and how transformation happens. You begin, so the book that we're, we're talking about and around, about uh, what does your soul love, you start with the imagery of sinking. 
And I'd love to hear more about that because that's typically when you say, tell somebody, oh, I'm just sinking. That's not a great thing. You're not saying, and it's great that I'm sinking. Uh, talk about that a little bit as a, as a beneficial and a holy and a helpful thing. Yeah, so the, the actual image is I grew up in a family where we water skied. So, of course, you're behind a boat and you're being pulled at a certain pace and you stay on the surface of the water. And that's what you're trying for. And in that scenario, sinking is not what you're you know, trying for. But what I was trying to say is that many times we sort of skim the surface of our lives kind of like that image of water skiing. And there is something in the depths of who we are that God is speaking to. And that uh, many of us, our orientation even to the life of faith can sometimes be more at the surface of things. What do they think? You know, do they like this? Do they not like this? How do I look to everybody? You know, um, whereas the depth is sinking down. Down there is where the questions are. Down there are where the motives are. That's where my thoughts live. Uh, these are the places where I think Jesus, in his absolute genius, speaks to. We keep listening as though, and I say we, some, listen more at the surface where I think Jesus is speaking to the depths. And uh, so that's, that's the metaphor of sinking and why we think, you know, being able to be down at those places of depth where Jesus is addressing, Jesus is speaking, is the, is the place of transformation. Mm. Yeah, the, um, I think, I can't remember if it's in that same chapter, but we do go on to talk about Thomas Kelly and his idea of living on two levels. And um, there's a, that um, level of life that we all live. We can see it with our eyes. We're moving around. We're driving our car somewhere. We're taking our kids to school. We're working. We're, we have seasons of life that we go through. And he talks about the other level where there's worship and prayer and spiritual practices that have been there. And I, I think that level really is just, the movements of the Holy Spirit in our life. And he calls that level the divine breathings, mm. which I just think is so poetic. And so that sinking into us is helping ourselves and others learn how to make the connections between this life that we're living that we can see very easily and that uh, we're moving about day to day. Then how would we dip into those divine breathings over the course of our life, cooperating with what God is initiating all the time? It's another part of that sinking down in. Mm-hmm. What do you? Can you identify some obstacles to to the sinking? Uh, are there is anything from a season to a fear to a you know? What, what are some of the things you see as obstacles to people actually diving into those depths? Two come to my mind right away. Mm-hmm. You want me to go first, please. <laughs> so one of them is um, just lack of knowledge. I think some people don't know about that other level for whatever reason. Um, And then if you do know about it, I think fear is one of, obviously that's one of the, one of the uh, topics we don't, we went into in the book, but fear always comes up for me first. Um, You're afraid to go somewhere because you don't know what you'll see. You don't know how long it takes. And then for, and then you stay at another level just because now, well, now you've got to numb it and deny it and keep it away from yourself. And so I think fear is one of the first things that keeps us from going to another place. Mm-hmm. 
I think there are a lot of them. Some of the questions in the book that frame the book um, kind of address this at different levels. I do think one of them, when I think of those who've been on a bit of a journey in their spiritual lives, have gone down that road a ways. Uh, I think one very important one is a kind of hopelessness mm. that you bump into places where you think, I don't know if change is possible. I don't know if this about me can be changed. At least up until this moment, I haven't seen much in the way of change that has lasted. And so I wonder, maybe this is unchangeable. So I, I think part of what we're wanting to say is, you know, if God is indeed the initiator of this journey of transformation, then the question of impossibility rests with him and not with me. And I think he's pretty clear on the topic of whether or not things are impossible for him or not. And that gives us then hopefulness where, where maybe we haven't seen ourselves come to places of greater freedom or greater capacity or whatever it was that we were hoping would change. But that is not something that has limited God. And, and God wants very much to be uh, coming alongside us and helping us enter into that transforming journey, that, that work that he's initiating and superintending and, and overseeing and energizing and guiding. Uh, all along the way. I also wonder if there are seasons of life where we just lack the energy to let ourselves go in all the way. Uh, it isn't a lack of desire, but it's a belief that we just don't have the juice. And I'm thinking of people who may be in situations with aging and f f help parents who are aging or failing in their health or a child mm -hmm. who's going through a, a chronic illness, or even a, a something for ourselves where we're you know, dealing with a chronic illness or depression and anxiety. Is there a legitimacy to that? that there might just be a winter kind of season that keeps us from those deeper places? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think there are times in our life when you are just barely holding on. And we're both spiritual directors. And if there was a directee sitting with me and that was the season they were in, I could see myself saying, you know, let's take some of the pressure off here. Maybe you don't need to go digging in, in any way right now. And it's just enough that you are holding on in the, in the trauma that you're in and letting God hold you and carry you. And we can figure things out later. We can learn some new things later if you want. But can you be carried? Can you be held by the love of God right now? Yeah, I think that's, that's part of what I want to say, uh, coming along to someone who feels like they have a very narrow bandwidth for any new initiative. You know, um, Again, what I want to say is the good news is that this transforming work is something God is caring for. Uh, he's not dumping it off on you and then you know, heading off to the home office you know, millions of miles away. And so it may well be that the, a season like that, where we feel our lives are very heavy or very full or whatever it is, actually it may be in that very season, God is doing something under the surface I can't even see. And the moment will come for him to unveil it at some future date. It may feel like nothing right now, but God is never doing nothing. Uh, God is always doing good work. And, you know, our lives are uh, his personal expression of creativity. He, he wants us to shine with you know, his character. He wants our lives to become weighty in the sense that they are meaningful and, and that they matter. 
So I, I would want someone who feels like their life is full or heavy or overwhelming or whatever, not to feel like this is one more thing for their already too long to do list, but it's an opportunity to become aware of God's very, very faithful uh, commitment to this transforming work. Yeah. Yeah. In the book, there's the chapter on pain. Um, I shared about a debilitating uh, lower back issue. It was a, a disc extrusion, which meant I had bone pressing on nerve. And, and I've had three cesareans. I've had pain, but nerve pain is another thing that I did not know existed. I, I, I had no idea. And I'm going to promise you that during that time, I was not trying to learn or grow. <laughs> I was holding on day by day just getting from one pain pill to the next, going to therapies, and the healing took a long time. Yeah, well, months. It took months. And for the excruciating pain, probably only, la only lasted, you know, two to four weeks, which is a lot when you're in excruciating pain. But I can tell you now, and as I've looked back at that, one, it was one of the deepest works of God in my life my entire life. I wasn't doing anything during the time to facilitate that. But God was doing something underneath the surface that ch literally changed me. I grew in empathy. It opened my eyes to a whole nother level of pain that other people around the world are feeling that I didn't know about. And so my heart of compassion opened up. But see, all that didn't happen until later when the, when the pain subsided. So this is the very long answer that we're giving to your question, <laughs> but um, that, that sometimes when you're in something, you're just in it. And you may not know what the fruit is until after. It, and it may or may not even be life-changing. In my case, it was. And I like that. It's the idea of just being in it. And some of that, some of that too rotates around. I love the way you've talked about the, what you've done, the work that you've done, and what I know of, Alan, your books previously, is there's always an invitation. And I like the, the idea of invitation, Jesus's language, not as imperative, you know, come mm. or else, but come as an invitation. Like this will be good for you if you take it. But within that, I also hear the importance of the image of God, uh, that an invitation is only as good as we believe God to be. How do you connect? What is the image of God that you feel like is best manifested in the book that you've written? Hmm. Well, I think I'm going to go back to the story I was just sharing because Actually, in the midst of that pain, it was probably a, only not even a week into it when it was getting very severe, and we haven't, hadn't even diagnosed it yet. I had what I, I don't know what to call it. I had an encounter <laughs> with God in the backseat of the van as Alan was driving. And I was listening to worship music really loud in my earbuds, and I was feeling the severe pain in my body that was overwhelming. And in the midst of that pain, I just had a sense that God was with me. Now, that's 
we've said that sentence a lot, right? God's with me. God will be with you. God we, will show up. We, yeah, we, we use it. We, peace be with you. God be with you. But what I'm trying to describe is that in that moment, I just sensed it in my being. And I think it was a gift of the spirit, a gift of God, that he was saying, I am with you in your pain. So now that happened in 2008. So what is that, 11 years ago? That was a turning point for me where um, before that, my, my concept of God was that he was somewhere else and that I was usually trying to draw him closer to me to see what was going on so he could help me out. But since that pain, this is one of the things that occurred that I told you was life-changing for me is I now have a paradigm of God being with. And that verse in Acts that says, in him we live and move and have our being. I know that. That, and that's, I think, and when I say I know, there's that wisdom again, right? I just know in my body, in my soul, in my spirit, my mind, my heart, whatever, the whole thing, God is with me. That was the biggest. And so I've had a different view of who God is and where he is since then. Yeah. And so, so maybe to piggyback on that, the God who is with you, with us, you know, there's been this growing vision that, well, this God is very much like Jesus. Mm. Mm. And that's really, really good news. Because I've got some gut-level images of God. I have one that got shaped by a church experience as a little kid where one of the pastors managed to turn something like Psalm 139, no matter where you go, God will be there too which I thought was supposed to be good news now, but then it sounded like no matter where you go, God's going to find you. It's like, ha, ha, ha. And so there was a little something in me that God with me, that might be bad news. I, I think I want to get away from that. But now, you know, over time, it's, it's the realization of the God who's with me. It's a kind of God who longs to be gracious. It's a kind of God who absolutely takes great delight in being merciful. He's the kind of God who is not looking at my life as junk that needs to be repurposed, but as a masterpiece that needs to be restored. And so that sense of God for me, <clears throat> profoundly for me, for me in ways I can hardly even imagine or even think about. Um, this is part of the transforming journey. The transforming isn't just my character or my morality or my you know, theological framework, those are all things that, yes, need to be, uh, need to be transformed, surely. But it's that gut image of God, uh, a God who, when he is with me, when God is with me, that is mm. immensely good news for me. The book highlights something that I feel like is, uh, I don't know if you do this, but sometimes I'll read things and they highlight a recurring theme that's in my own life. And so every a lot of times it's it's the old joke about when you fall in love every song on the radio starts to make sense to you, that sort of thing. Uh when you when you have something that either God is bringing to mind or that you're living with or or that's a, a common theme. And one of them that I see in what you've written here is the idea of there's a focal point. There's a Back to Kierkegaard almost, the purity of heart is to will one thing. 
And that mm-hmm. idea of, it seems like it begins, all of this begins with the idea of desire. And mm-hmm. what is the thing that we want, which is also what I see in my own childhood and, and growing up in the church as the thing we talked about the least. And when we did talk about it, it wasn't good. Like, we're going to talk about desire today. And nobody was like, well, this should be uplifting. Uh, <laughs> It was always, you know, stuff it, kill it, mortify it, choke it, whatever you need to do. Uh, how did you, right. how did you find your way to beginning with the idea of desire as this is where our, our questions really start? Yeah. So I mean, I'd probably share with you some similar experiences of, you know, the heart is desperately wicked. So anything at once is just bad. So don't go there. Stay right in the safe neighborhood of obligation and moral effort and things like this. But I think in some cases, it was the language of some of the Psalms. You know, like I hear David saying one thing, one thing I ask of the Lord. This is what I'm seeking, that I might be at home in the presence of the Lord all the days of my life, that I might be the kind of person who gazes on the beauty of God, that I might be the kind of person who seeks him in his temple. Or a little later uh, psalm, you know, the psalmist says something like, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. And so I think some of those prayers, as I've prayed them over time have caused me to realize that, you know, um, I was made to long for God. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to talk about that philosophically, and you can quote Augustine, and you can do all kinds of things to, to serve as that. But, but I'm talking about the experience of, you know, every way in which my desires, for example, got misdirected. You know, something like lust or something like rage or something like envy is just sort of a bent version of something original that God made to be very good. So part of the journey of transformation is learning what was that desire supposed to be? What what did God have in mind when he put that kind of a, a longing within me? And yes, somehow along the way it got misdirected or bent somehow. But that doesn't make the desire in itself bad. It just means it got directed poorly. And I might find that if I could direct that desire in the direction of God and God's kingdom and God's ways and the community of God, I might find that that is a holy energy for living well and that God might indeed be the one who could meet me in that place of longing. So uh, one of my counselors, I'll say therapist, you know, we would talk about these sorts of things. And one of the things he said is realize, you know, desire and emotion is just God-given energy. So if you decide to try and shut it down, well, it's going to be like, you know, putting your thumb on the end of a hose. It's just going to spray everywhere. <laughs> you know, it, it, it is going to go somewhere. So you might do well to see if it can be redeemed and and healed and restored to what it was, you know, meant to be. Mm. Oh, that's good. I like that picture of the hose. I like it because I like it because it's accurate, you know. Because <laughs> I could go back in my memory banks and go, "Oh yeah, that that is exactly what happened. It went everywhere." 
<laughs> but living in that coordination between our desires. So we have our desires, which are good. Our emotions can be good. They can also be misdirected, like you said. They, they're bent versions of the original things. But that also God has desires. That God is a being who desires and who delights and who invites. How do we live at the intersection between our desires and the desires that God has in mind? I think for that, again, Jesus is coming to mind. You know, um, in the Gospels, you've got the, um, the story of the friends who lowered their friend down through the roof. and. Um, you know, bringing damage to property and not really asking permission, but just doing it. And then you're floating down. I mean, you can picture yourself, you're on this mat. Somehow you're being lowered down. I don't know, with a rope, with arms, I'm not sure. And there you are in front of Jesus. And I like to imagine that scene as a question about this. What does Jesus desire for this man? He's watching it happen. There's dirt coming down from above and the, what, or whatever the roof was made out of back then. And well, there's a guy coming down. You've got to think that Jesus has a desire before even the friends and the man had a desire. But I love the way Jesus just does things. So you know how the story unfolds. You know, he says, take up your mat and then gets in an argument with the Pharisees because that's what they always like to do. <laughs> but um, I think Jesus, and there's so many other stories in the gospel where Jesus is so particular and he just says just the right thing to the person to empower, to heal, to send off. And um, actually there is an exercise in this book where we use that very image and we have you wrestle with what do you, if you were the person on the mat and you were being lowered, what do you actually think might be Jesus' desire for you? So you can spend some time actually thinking about that. But I like, I like the tangible nature of thinking about Jesus being in front of you and how that might enliven your um, imagination for what God might want for you. I think the other thing that I, I like to think is that um, in reality, my desires at their best, at their most essential, are part of the way in which I've been made in the image of a God who desires. And so I think sometimes we sort of imagine that our desires, our true desires, are somehow at odds with God's actual desires. Now, some of my feel-likes, some of the ways my desires got bent, yes, now we have flesh and spirit. Yes, there's this sort of experience of being at odds. But it's, but it's in some ways not really essential. It's, it's, not, it's not irretrievable. This is actually um, that flesh-spirit reality is learning to discern uh, what it is I truly, deeply, actually want. I think I want things. The great news is Jesus knows I think I want things. Uh, but he actually knows my wanter better than I do. And Part of what he's trying to help me learn is what it is that would actually bring me to a place of deep satisfaction. And fulfilling a lust isn't going to do that. That's like drinking ice cold salt water, you know. Hooray, but now I'm, I'm thirstier. Whereas I think he's trying to lead us into that place where we'll find our true desires are really very much an echo 
they really are in union with what his heart is like. And that shouldn't surprise us because uh, at the center of who we are, we've been made into, you know, in his image. And so there should be a resonance. Um, when I'm being transformed to more truly, more wholly reflect God's heart, my desires and his desires might increasingly find themselves to be an echo of one another. It's so good to think that a lot of times God and I are on the same page. Even even though that doesn't seem like to to some of us that doesn't always seem like a reality to to think that God wants the things that I want maybe even more than I do, uh, because I only see a little bit of the goodness of it. Uh, you write about eight questions. It, the book is structured around eight questions that reveal what God is doing in us. I'm wondering if there's one of those questions that for each of you was the most significant or maybe the most difficult to write about or write through. And I don't want to cherry, there's one, I don't want to cherry pick it, but I'm just, I'm just curious what your, what it was for you, your experience of going through those. Uh, I, I can tell you that it was actually the chapter on vulnerability. And what's interesting about that is that was, that was added in because this started out actually as seven questions. And we added vulnerability. Actually. That's right. That and then we changed, right. in pain, we changed out for another one. So, but for me, vulnerability, it was funny because we went away to write this book. We outlined it. We had all this sort of writing fodder that we had from all these things. And we were placing it into, into these chapters. And we came home from this big writing retreat. And now we're just writing separately. We both wrote half of it, but on our own. And I went one day to the vulnerability chapter and I looked at most of the notes that I had put in there and none of it was gonna work. And I came face to face, face to face with the fact that in order to write a chapter on vulnerability, I was gonna have to be vulnerable. <laughs> that is absolutely <laughs> shocking. That is strange. I can't believe that happened. So weird. Isn't that funny? But again, so many things come back to you, you will share your lives. I could, I, the things I had put in the chapter were things that were keeping me a little bit at arm's length from being vulnerable. So I had to go in and really dig around and find some things. And then, um, I don't know if you've read that chapter yet, but I talk about our dog. And um, I was embarrassed to write that down, but it, but I had to share it because this little tiny seven pound, you know, gray wawa um, somehow penetrated my, my, uh, there was a little bit of a crust around my heart. And it's like, he went in there and he, and he broke down that last layer to where then vulnerability, uh, a new level of vulnerability became an option for me. And again, like my um, pain, once that was opened, my first reaction was fear <laughs> because I'm like, whoa, people, you can feel this much. You know, we already told you I'm a seven, so you're a four, so you're going, of course you can feel this much. Come on in, wait around. The water's fine. You're a seven whose main job is to keep themselves free from pain, right? The need to avoid, or even the risk of it. Don't want to do that. 
And so I had very, uh, almost not even known to myself, constructed some really good walls in there. And once they started to break down even further, I was actually afraid of the amount of feeling that could be had. And, and then I realized again, my compassion went outward. I was like, whoa, there are people around the world who feel. And I wasn't even feeling at the level I'm sure that I will as I continue to grow, but I was just astounded that other people are walking around with this much feeling. And um, my compassion grew. So hmm. vulnerability was um, the biggest, the most struggle chapter for me to write. But I think it was so good because, again, I got opened up to a new level of myself. Hmm. So I, I got to be honest, you know, when I wrote a number of these chapters, I felt like I had to say some, some you know, like, uh, apologize for myself that, you know, I don't feel like I've grown very much here, but I have to write this chapter about this topic. You know. But of all of them, maybe it sounds odd to say that the one I found most challenging was the chapter on joy. Hmm. Whether it's by nature or by nurture or a little bit of both, um, I find joy challenging. Sure. I can sure. tend to be a cup half empty guy. I can tell you what's wrong with something, you know. Um, and, you know, I always thought that was a great benefit because then you could improve it, you know. <laughs> Isn't that great? Uh, but the reality is to, uh, to be able to find that when Scripture says, when the, the story of Nehemiah emerges that the joy of the Lord really does strengthen us, that joy is a kind of motor for transformation, not obligation, not should, not you need to, but just the sheer joy of God might actually move and energize us for this transforming journey. That continues to be a place for me to lean into. And sometimes I've opted for excitement or stimulation that's more of an external nature, rather than for the kind of joy that arises from within us in this communion with a very, very joyful God. That's part of the discovery, is that whatever joy looks like for me, it's actually an entering into a much greater joy, a divine joy, that's real, that's a part of the nature of God. We say that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Well, that's because that's what God's like. You know, it's not some obscure fruit of the Spirit separate from who God is. But So I would say joy is the one I have to keep leaning into, um, which maybe is a little bit of my, my Enneagram type, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I know is what is so good about this conversation is I think I believe people are hearing the transparency and the, Jim, you talked about keeping it real. I think there's such a value to that. And you bring that not only to your relationship with each other, but to the book. So I believe that comes through in the reading. And I think that has a deep impact um, that it's not a, it, it cuts down the distance between your voices and the voice and the mind of the reader. So thank you for giving us this gift. We, we as a reading community and the people who haven't read it yet, I'll speak for them. Uh, really appreciate what you've done and how you've shared some of these things with us. Well, well, we appreciate it, Casey. It's been good to have this conversation help, and for your helping us think about yeah. you know, what we've written as well. Yeah. Glad to. As I said in the intro, Alan and Jem Fadling are 
president and vice president and co-founders of Unhurried Living, which is inspiring people to rest deeper, live fuller, and lead better. They both speak and lead in a variety of settings, including internationally, and their books, including the one we talked about, What Does Your Soul Love?, but also An Unhurried Leader and Unhurried Living are incredible resources for you no matter where you might be. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. If you're listening on my website, thanks for streaming. If you are listening via iTunes, thank you so much. I hope you'll subscribe. And I also hope that if you have a chance, you'll leave a review or a rating that would really help people to get to know the podcast. And so as you start to ask the questions of what your soul loves, I pray that God blesses you with wisdom and insight that you didn't have before you listened to this conversation. Be well, live wisely. Peace, friends.